We are nearly there, aren't we? Three weeks now to go until Christmas. I wonder if anyone knows how many days have we got left? Is anyone on the point of daily countdowns yet? Anyone? 20? Is that right? I have no idea what it is. It is 20. I, I thought Karis would know. That's when I, and I thought, I'm going to ask, and I'm sure if anyone knows, it'll be Karis. <laughs> so, because I can rely on you for that. So that's right. As Neil said this evening, we're, we're starting our Advent sermon series, where we're going to help ourselves focus in on celebrating Jesus coming into the world. And as Neil said, this, this series is called A Gift to You, because Jesus is the best gift that you could receive. It's the gift given by the God of heaven and earth himself. It is a great time for us as Christians to just really dwell on that and to really celebrate in this season. You know, I always think as Christians, we should be the ones who the most celebrate and enjoy and just have kind of joy and life in this period of time. So to kick off, we're in Isaiah 9, and where we're coming in here in Isaiah is in the middle of a really difficult time for the people of God, and a time that's actually about to get even worse for them. So this this section of Isaiah that has Isaiah chapter 9 in it starts back in Isaiah chapter 7. And as we read there in in the first verse of Isaiah chapter 7, it says that this is happening in the days of King Ahaz. And Ahaz is, is really not a great king, if you know anything about him. So his father was pretty good. It says about him that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But even he, Ahaz's father, he didn't remove the kind of pagan altars that were all around the country. He didn't stop people from worshipping all sorts of other gods. And you know, ever since Genesis chapter 3... We are waiting and we are wondering, where is the serpent crusher? That's the great promise that God gives right there in the beginning, that there's going to be one who crushes the head of the serpent, who defeats Satan once and for all and forever. And so Ahaz's father is pretty good. And every time we meet a character in the Bible narrative, we're kind of left wondering, is this him? Is this the serpent crusher? And Ahaz is pretty good, not quite perfect, and he dies. So it's not him. So now, how about Ahaz himself? He's got a good chance, right? His dad was pretty good. Maybe this is going to be the one. But definitely, definitely not, as we're going to see. Then you can read about Ahaz in in 2 Kings chapter 16 or 2 Chronicles 28. And basically what we learn there is Ahaz was defeated by the king of Syria And then he was defeated again in an even bigger way by the king of Israel. And in that battle, 120,000 men of the army were slaughtered. So it's just decimation for the nation under Ahaz. And Ahaz's response to this is basically, it seems like complete panic. So he turns to all sorts of things. He tries sacrificing his sons as sacrifices to try and get some sort of favor from the gods he is worshipping. It says that he worships on every high altar, on every hill. He worships under every tree. It just looks like he's scrambling around to try and look everywhere for a God to help him, except the one true God who is right there. And what he does, he goes to the temple, finally, you might think. But not to go worship God. He goes to the temple to go get all the gold and silver in the temple, take it all out, 
and go and give it to the king of Assyria to try and buy some favour from him. And that does actually work, and he goes over to Assyria, and while he's in Assyria, he sees that the king there has this really nice altar to yet another god. And he thinks, this is great. He takes detailed notes, sends them back to Jerusalem, has the priests make him the same kind of altar, goes back to Jerusalem, takes the bronze altar out of the temple, puts it with this new altar, and then offers all the sacrifices that God had commanded to this other god. And he set up for himself metal images, idols, and he asked those what to do. That's what it says. He was asking these these metal plates and metal images what he should do. And again, the true living God is right there, but he's just turned away from him. And the country, even though he's made this deal, is still under threat of attack and battle. And actually, we know that from, from the history of what's going to happen, that this is about to be the start of an exile, that people are going to be captured and taken away from the nation. It's basically going to collapse. So I think it's understandable why at the end of chapter 8 and start of chapter 9 here in Isaiah, Isaiah describes distress and darkness, gloom and anguish, thick darkness. Isaiah is writing here about 700 years before Jesus is born. And while King Ahaz is abandoning God, tearing apart the temple, worshipping false gods from other nations, through Isaiah, God is giving his people in Judah a promise of a Messiah who is coming, who will be everything that King Ahaz is not. In fact, throughout their history, even the kings that seem not so bad, they're still not the king that they need. Throughout all the kings of Israel and Judah, there is not a single one who is perfect. And none of them is the promised serpent crusher that we're waiting for. And I guess if you look around at our leaders in our city, our nation, our world, yeah, there's some good that they do that could probably point to. But there's a lot of disappointment and frustration as well, isn't there? And those feelings and that tension exists because we were made for another kingdom. Just like for Judah, we also need someone better. We need King Jesus. So let's read about this promised king and read just a couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So our Advent series, a gift to you. What is it that God has given us? So the first part of this gift that we're looking at this week is a king for you. So here's the gift. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's the gift, the child, a son, the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. Finally, this is 
the serpent crusher that we have been waiting for. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That word government literally means burden. So that burden, the responsibility of of government, of leading, of power, will be on his back, on his shoulder. He's the, the one who is going to be in total control, the one who is ruling. And what sort of government can we expect from from this uh, kingdom. Well, the type of government you have is shaped very much by the character of the leaders. So what is this king going to be like? Well, let's look at the titles that Isaiah gives him here. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he is Wonderful Counselor. He is wise. He is mighty God. He is strong. He is everlasting father. He is eternal and he is prince of peace. So he is wise, strong, eternal and brings peace. So let's unpack all of those a little bit more. So first of all, he is a wonderful counsellor. He is wise and his, his counsel is wonderful for two reasons. One, because it is true And second, because it is effective. If you want counsel that is great, you really hope for those two things. You hope for truth and you hope that it's going to be effective and actually generate some change. So his counsel is true because he is God and he he knows all things. And honestly, I couldn't put it any better than Romans chapter 11. So I'm just going to read that where it says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's just, I could not put that more powerfully than the way that Paul does in Romans 11. His counsel is wonderfully true because he is God and his ways are not our ways. His perspective is just so much higher and so much greater that he looks at things with a kind of scope that we can't really even begin to imagine. And so all things are from him. That means they're created by him. They're Through him, meaning he sustains them, and they are to him, meaning they are for his purposes and his glory. From him, through him, and to him are all things. And that is just mind-blowingly comprehensive. That means that Jesus has got it. He's totally in control. So his counsel is always wonderfully true, and it is also wonderfully effective. Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he works, he works, he causes, he's active. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he knows what his plans are. And he knows what is true wisdom. And his wisdom is active, not passive. Jesus is God. He knows what the future holds for you. And he knows how all things interact. So if you're, if you're reading uh, John Piper's 
Advent devotional at the moment, um, Good News of Great Joy, like we are, and there are a couple of others are as well at the moment. Well, the reading yesterday was reflecting on the fact that God orchestrated the events on the world stage so that Caesar Augustus would call a census for the entire empire. And this caused Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem, which caused them to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so God was working through world-spanning events and world leaders on a massive scale to guide a young couple who were not famous, who were not well-known, who were not rich, who were not influential. And Caesar Augustus had, didn't have them in mind. He didn't even know who they were. And yet God was working through that scale of events in order to bring around his purposes and his plan. That is how God works for his people. God is working for you at a scale and through events that are just beyond the scope of your understanding. Things that seem way beyond us on the national or international scale. And you might think that has nothing to do with me. But God is the type of God where he has all of those things in his hand. And he is using them for you, for each one of us in particular ways. So Jesus counsels himself according to his knowledge and wisdom in order to work all things together and run the world so that all things work out for the good of his people. And he also graciously passes his counsel of wisdom on to us. Psalm 32 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So God has given us his spirit to guide us, and he has given us his word, which contains wisdom for all sorts of situations. And I wonder if you've experienced that personally. I know that I have. I find that in so many situations of my life, if I didn't have the Bible, if I wasn't a Christian, I would struggle so much to know what to do and what is the right decision. But I'm so grateful that God has given in his word so much of his wisdom to us. That it's easy to know what the priorities of our life should be and how we should even handle difficult situations by examining the scriptures. I mean, even tricky things like relationships. And I see a lot of people just stumbling through relationships, but we get fantastic, wise guidelines on how to handle them. Things like a soft word turns aside wrath, or forgive your brother 77 times. Or how about this, by handling conflict, by confronting someone one-to-one, and then going with one or two others, and then bringing it to the church. Like, that's really a wise way to handle conflict. But, you know, the natural way is normally to gossip to our spouse, to gossip to our one or two closest friends, to gossip to the church. And then maybe if we're still feeling annoyed, then we consider going to the person and bringing it to them. But that's such a destructive way of going about it, an unwise way of handling conflict. But that's what would come naturally to us. And that's what you can see in all sorts of situations. Even my sister last week was saying to me how she was seeing how that happened and she wishes people would just go one-to-one. And I said to her, well, you know, that is a wise thing to say. I know that because the Bible tells us that. Jesus told us that. It's amazing. 
Um, I've even had training at work about a month ago um, where, where we had uh, this uh, like team training how to work well as a team. And they were showing us this video as a bit like a TED talk. And the guy was saying some things, I was, I was rolling my eyes. Like when I've gone into this corporate setting, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this corporate stuff, I'm going to roll my eyes so much, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. And, and I sat down there with a lot of scepticism. And the guy on the screen was like, well, you know what? You have to have this foundation of trust, even if it's a cost to yourself, this kind of sacrificial way. You have to forgive one another. You need to find unity and a common purpose. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. All these things are great, actually. Like, I was very surprised. And at the end of this video, and, and think this is in a corporate setting, there's like 50 people in the room. I don't think there's any other Christians as far as I know yet there. And the guy on the video was like, and I pray that God will bless you in building your churches and businesses in this way. I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe the senior leadership of my company have selected this video. And it's basically full of the wisdom of God. But you know, even in the business world, those people can see that there's something there in that wisdom that is just different, is so valuable, is so true. And that's what we have as a gift from God in his word. So mighty God, he is strong. And that's the good news, that, that this king is mighty God. He has this wise counsel, but he is strong to bring it to completion. If we think about what it says in Hebrews 1 about Jesus, it says that the whole world was created through Jesus. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It only takes a word from Jesus to change the world. And he is for us. And so this king is not only a human king, but he is mighty God. And that's what we need. We need a king who is fully human on the one hand, but fully God on the other. Fully human so he can sympathise with us. And so he can take our place as our perfect substitute. But mighty God, so that he is perfect without sin and he is infinitely able to take our punishment. And what I mean about infinitely able to take our punishment is that if you think about it, the maths doesn't actually work out. If you have one perfect human, then I always think one perfect human can surely just be a substitute for one sinful person, right? But that's why it's so important that Jesus is fully God as well. He is the infinite God. And so our substitute is not just a perfect human, but also infinitely God. And so infinitely able to take upon his shoulders the burden and the weight of our deserved punishment. And so he can take the punishment for an infinite number of people. And next, he is everlasting father. He is eternal. And now it might seem really strange and hit you a bit funny that, that the son of the Trinity is called the father. But you see, in a sense, if we are in Christ, we are his offspring. Those in Christ are a new creation that the old has passed away and the new has come. And that transformation that's brought about by entering into his work at the cross. It makes him, in a sense, a spiritual father to us. 
though he is definitely distinct from the work and the person of the father of the Trinity. But in a likeness, he is a spiritual father to us. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He's everlasting father. And in this way, he cannot fail as the other kings and leaders and governments and movements will fail. You see, some people, especially the Jews, they think that the king who comes next after Ahaz, Hezekiah, is the fulfillment of these promises. But you see, Hezekiah, he was a good king. It says about him that he held fast to the Lord. But he was defeated multiple times while he was king. And the nation was basically in ruins under him. The people were carried away into captivity. And at the end of his life, he heard from God that it was his offspring where the nation was going to fall. And his response was, oh, good. It's not me. It's, It's after me. Fine. I don't really care then. So he became really selfish and introspective. And then the key thing, remember I said this earlier as well, He died. So how can he be the everlasting father? How can he be the serpent crusher? How can he be the promised one when he died? There was an end to his kingdom. So while there is certainly one level of fulfillment of these prophecies in King Hezekiah, there is the final and the complete fulfillment in Jesus who rose from the dead and is still bringing in a people to himself, who is bringing in his offspring. Let's read verse 7 together and see more clearly that there really has to be something drastically different about the promised king. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The instituting of this kingdom is definitely not something finished, but will increase. You see, Jesus' kingdom can never decrease because when he makes someone his, they will never, ever be plucked out of his hand. And though we we die, it's not the end because we go to be with him. And one day there will be a physical resurrection into his physical, eternal kingdom that will never end. And so though his people die, they are not lost. And Jesus is patient to not yet return desiring that none should be lost. But he is adding more and more and more to his kingdom until that promise to Abraham is met that his offspring shall be as many as the stars in the sky. And I don't know about you or whether it's just me, but in the Christmas season, I get really drawn to the stars. I mean, we have these really long dark nights, but I just feel there's something real, really special about looking at those stars. And they're the same stars that Abraham was looking at when God made that promise. They were the same stars that were there when Jesus was born. And so finally, he is the Prince of Peace. Or rather, he is, the, he is the prince of shalom. And shalom is a bit more of a, of a fuller, richer word than just peace. It means wholeness, completeness, prosperity, tranquility, happiness, peace. It's a real full word. 
And Jesus is the prince of all those things. He is the prince of shalom. He brings us completeness and wholeness in that we were created for a relationship with our creator, with God. And he makes a way for us to be reconciled in peace to God. How does he do this? I think we're all going to know the answer, but it's, it's even in Isaiah. Later on in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus took the punishment we deserve for our sin, for our wrongdoing and our rebellion against God. He takes it away from us and leaves us with peace. And there's a real graphical picture of this in a burnt offering in the sacrifices that God's people are commanded to give, where the animal is put in the fire and the fire catches it aflame and it burns and it burns and it burns and it burns until there is nothing left and the fire goes out. And then the only thing that is left is the ashes when there is nothing left to consume. And those ashes, we read in Numbers, could be used to kind of make someone who is unclean to make them ritually purified again. That it was the purification from sin. And God's wrath, like a fire, burned against Jesus until his wrath was fully burned out, like the burnt sacrifice. Fully burned out so that only ashes are left. And the ashes are peace. After the wrath, the anger, the punishment is all poured out, there is nothing left, none at all, and only peace. And if those ashes back in numbers could make someone clean, then how much more will the blood of Christ wash us with peace and make us clean? So if you are in Christ, there are only ashes left for you. There is only peace left with you. So we have peace with God now, and there is a greater peace coming. If we look down at verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. God's plan for creation is not yet done. There's still a promise of coming peace, of greater peace, of an everlasting peace. It's the kind of peace from Isaiah chapter 11, a couple of pages on, where the wolf lives with the lamb, where the child puts their hand in the snake nest and is not harmed. It's the kingdom we see at the end of Revelation, a new Jerusalem where Jesus will be on the throne forever and there'll be no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. And I guess at the end of the day, we, we don't really know what it's like to have a king, actually. I guess that's the strange thing, talking about a king so much tonight. Um, we have a monarchy in this country, which a lot of countries don't, but it is pretty much 100% symbolic, isn't it? The queen doesn't actually have any power. And we have a prime minister, but their power is limited by, by parliament and their power is diluted by the design of our system, which, don't get me wrong, is a very good thing. Um, it's a real gamble to give one person total power. Um, and if you have one person completely in control, 
it really matters who they are. We just have to look at history to see that, or look at other nations of the world. If you have all of that resting on the shoulders of one person, really, really matters who they are. And around 2,021 years ago, God gave the world a perfect king, a king who can be trusted with our lives, a king who can be trusted with our eternity. And his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. We have been given an amazing king and we have been brought into an amazing kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your son through whom we have peace and a relationship with you. Thank you for giving us the king that we need and for bringing us into an everlasting kingdom of peace. Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is not like a kingdom of the world, but that your kingdom will never fall, but will only increase more and more in number and peace and glory and on into eternity. We look forward to that that day when the new heaven and the new earth are revealed and we will rise with you and experience that new kind of peace without hurt or suffering or sickness or sin or death. We really look forward to seeing you face to face in your kingdom and standing around your throne for eternity, singing holy, holy, holy. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to grasp hold of the greatness of who Jesus is. And I pray that we would celebrate well now, this evening. And I pray that we would celebrate really well this Christmas time, just rejoicing in the King that we have been given. In Jesus' name, amen.